the night has come, when the night has come and the land is dark, and the moon is the only light, and the moon is the only light, and the moon is the only light, we will see. When the Hello, everybody. This is Barnita's Table Podcast, episode 19. Uh, and today we will be talking about redlining, uh, specifically in the context of an article uh, by Richmond University uh, titled uh, Not the Past, uh, which, is, which connects redlining uh, of the 20th century to the 21st century. Now, for those of you who do not know what redlining is, uh, it is a basic premises in the oppressor's playbook, shall we say, uh, in which minorities are deprived of certain rights and are treated as though their neighborhoods uh, and the places they live and work are of a lower grade than other neighborhoods uh, so that they might be further deprived of their rights, so that their property value might be devalued, uh, and so that they might be more easily gentrified. It is... Uh, a long-standing practice of the government uh, and was uh, very vehemently supported by the government uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, but a lot of people uh, say that it is an old practice. It is obsolete and it no longer happens. Uh, the point of our discussion today is to talk about how it still happens. <laughs> Does anybody want to jump in? Yeah, so just to start, and hello everyone, Lauren here. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what is racism um, this summer and this fall. And recently, I think I've talked about this story a little bit um, in previous episodes, but it's it's been sitting with me. So I was riding my bike as I often do and a lot of times um, people notice my presence in these nature spaces. Last weekend I was just asked if I was lost because what is a brown girl doing in nature? Um, and a few weeks before that I was biking and uh, an older white gentleman, he, he stopped me while I was on my bike and he said, hey, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing well, how are you doing? And that was before I realized he was really asking me, how, how am I doing as a black person this year? Um, and he just said, you know, I really think it's important that we, we stop and we talk to our black brothers and sisters. I think that's important. And so as this man speeds off on his bike, I really start to think about the fact that I've never seen that before. Um, I've, I've never seen any of my black or brown elders be able to ride their bikes at the age of 70 uh, and keep up with me, nevertheless speed past me. Um, and it just got me thinking that a lot of times my elders aren't, aren't as healthy as I would like them to be past the age of 40 or 50. And this man and checking in on me, you know, what was going through my head this entire time was, wow, I, I, I don't know anyone like you uh, who's brown or black and, and who's as healthy as you. But I couldn't say that, right? Because I felt that 
he wouldn't be able to handle that conversation. He wouldn't be able to handle my truth, unfortunately. Um, and it got me just thinking about how the idea of what racism is, well, for a lot of people, it's prejudice. It's not checking in on, on the people who are different from you. For me, it's very much so related to health. And as I think about <clears throat> my parents or <clears throat> my siblings who are 20 years older than me, um, I am a little bit obsessive about, about health and, and wellness. And I think housing is a piece of that that we don't often talk about um, and the ways that it's impacted how long we live. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Thank you for opening, Carlo. Hey, you know, this conversation is, I think, one of the most important conversations that we can be having um, right now. And um, one of the things that really stands out to me about this conversation is that, you know what, Lauren, we're still seeing, oh, no, I, I'm, I, I'm doing two things at once. I shouldn't be. Um, that so often, and I have many white family members who do this, they'll say, well, racism is over, or all that happened a long time ago. And, um, I just want to pull up one of these maps for you um, because uh, to show you um, a tool that you can go to if you if you Google the words not even passed. Um, this is actually uh, part of a, an ongoing project at the University of Richmond. And first they did all these maps that were of the um, I'm just going to pull this up so we can look at it. Um, Originally, it was um, 100 cities across the United States and their redlining maps. Now they've taken um, it one step further to not even pass social vulnerability and the legacy of redlining. And what's really interesting about this, it says the novel coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated many racial health inequities that existed well before this public health crisis. People of color are disproportionately contributing to COVID-19 cases, case counts, and mortality, and are also more likely to have an underlying health condition that can increase the risk of a severe illness from COVID. <laughs> Sorry, speaking of severe illness, um, I just, uh, I had drunk some tea and it went down the wrong windpipe. While COVID-19 has pushed racial health inequities into the national spotlight, the underlying differences in social, economic, and environmental conditions that give rise to inequities in COVID-19 infection, transmission, and severe illness are far from new. And so it shows you the direct link um, from the past to the present. And if, if you move through this, it's fascinating. Um, it explains how to use the site um, that uh, on the left, you can see the red line map, and then on the right, um, and the red line map was made by the homeowners loan corporations during the 1930s. And they graded mortgage security on four on a four grade scale. A neighborhoods were deemed best, blue were still desirable, yellow neighborhoods were definitely declining, and D neighborhoods, the red neighborhoods, were hazardous. And when you even read the language about them, they talk about um, infestations of black people, 
and ill infiltration by black and brown people. Um, but what's more horrifying about these um, these maps is that when you look at them and they have them for uh, many of the major cities, like so for instance, um, Carlo right now is in California. So they have Los Angeles. Um, and I don't know how, how widely they go in Los Angeles if they actually cover the San Fernando Valley. But as you look at these maps, as you click through them, you can see the red line version on one side. So it'll show you what it said in the shifting or infiltration of more Negroes and other subversive racial elements. This is the 1930s LA map. And if you see this section right here, if you go over, it shows you exactly where it is. And it can, it'll show you um, today. So whether, look at the index, like right here, this is a very high social vulnerability index. Um, you wanna be over here in the zeros, not up here. Um, and it, literally life expectancy, uh, median age, um, how many people over the age of 65, only 6.9% um, because of so many people dying younger. Um, diseases and health conditions. Look at asthma, off the charts in this community. Um, cancer um, is, is actually not, like people are dying of things that are chronic illnesses in this neighborhood, right? They're not dying of horrible cancers and things. They're dying of things that in other neighborhoods that have trees and have, and that's one of the things that the article um, said that I originally, I, I put the link to in the New York Times. It said that people who lived in these communities could be, um, that people who lived in these communities specifically um, often had life expectancies of between 10 to 20 years less than their white counterparts. And um, what, what do you think, of, uh, talk to me a little bit about what your observations about how these things are showing up um, in everyday people's lives as opposed to it happened a long time ago, Carlo. Um, well, I, well, first, thank you for all that. And it was uh, very impressive and you said it better than I could have, but uh, I think one thing that we should all remember, uh, whether you're on the inside or outside of the movement, shall we say, uh, is that when we say systemic racism, we really mean systemic racism. Uh, and this is not any individual who's doing this, although it was backed by individuals. Uh, it, this is systemic racism. This is a system that was built to uh, oppress us and has oppressed us uh, since it was built. Uh, and even if redlining did stop, and it hasn't, uh, but even if it did, uh, we'd still be living in these skewed neighborhoods. Uh, we'd still have a history where our grandparents or our, or our great grandparents uh, lived in a neighborhood that was considered lower grade and perhaps they were refused medical treatment or perhaps they were refused a mortgage, et cetera, uh, because of that. Uh, and that is systemic racism. It goes very deep, it still happens, uh, and it still affects us. Um, and I think that it is a disgusting fact that we have to explain that to people. Uh, and I think it's a disgusting fact that that is not taught, uh, that the term systemic racism is not taught to myself and my peers uh, because I had to learn it uh, because my parents had to teach me. And it is 
a proven phenomenon. Uh, you could just check all these websites and uh, I'll mention it again. It, it, the one we were specifically re referencing was not even passed, uh, which is a Richmond University uh, article and it links to the maps system that Marnita was just showcasing. Uh, and you can see for yourself that it is very real. Uh, it still affects us and it is terrible. Uh, and there's not enough conversation going on about it. There's too much, uh, like Marnita said, there's too much going on of racism is over or racism is in the past or go talking about the civil rights movement when the civil rights movement never really ended, uh, when the ails never really ended. You know, and what I really look at this, you know, I like for people to think about how things happen in people's bodies, Carlo and Lauren, you know, so imagine being in a neighborhood and some of these neighborhoods, according to this map, and it's, you know, the, these maps were just overlaid on top of the maps of the red line areas. So some of the neighbors had neighborhoods had 40% less tree cover than the next door white neighborhood. Um, and it, imagine on a hot day, so you're in Minneapolis and on an 80 degree day, what that could mean is a neighborhood where poor black and brown children played could be 20 degrees warmer. What do you think a slide feels like that's 20 degrees warmer? Um, you know, imagine walking through a space that is not green, that, uh, that even the trucks and the toys and the sand is too hot to play on. Would you really want to go outside all that much? Well, you know, I'm glad. <laughs> keep going, both of you. You both felt things. Go, yeah. Well, well, I don't think it's necessarily a fair question for me because I don't like to go outside anyway. But no, yes. def definitely even less, <laughs> yeah. But even less, okay. But Lauren does like to go outside. I love going outside. That is where I live. And Honestly, my parents, they moved uh, neighborhoods when they were able to use the equity from the first house in the black neighborhood, two blocks away from where George Floyd was killed. They moved to be closer to green, right? Like that was very intentional to be closer to a parkway or an area where there was more access to safely play in nature. Um, so that is not by any accident that I I have this passion. It was they they chose that, um, and you know as I was as you were going through talking about asthma, you know some of those things until you really read um, and reflect on your own experience. I just thought it was normal growing up as a kid. All of my cousins lived you know either. Um, and in the, the black neighborhood that I grew up in or in the one on the other side of town. And I just thought that nebulizers, that, that everyone having asthma, like all my cousins was, was normal. Like, I just thought that at Christmas and Thanksgiving that everyone's house had at least one nebulizer available because you know that one of the little kids is going to have asthma. And so it's kind of a shock to my system. <laughs> to realize that that's not everyone's reality. Um, yeah, it's hard to hear sometimes. See, and you just bring back a very powerful memory for me. Um, when my two of my children um, were, went to the elementary school where your mother taught for years, as you know, Lauren, and um, 
every day, Elijah for a while was getting sent home and they said it was because of asthma. And um, he had a neb and we were using it. Well, one literally, Sam got his brother who's two months younger and white got sent home. And they said, take him to the doctor immediately. Well, it turned out both Elijah and Sam had pneumonia. Both of them did, had pneumonia. But it wasn't until Sam showed system symptoms that the school made a recommendation to go to the doctor, um, other than just saying like, here's a nebula. I mean, like they literally were, and I, as a parent, you know, they were, they were kind of coaching me to not be too easy on my kid. And his pediatrician said, well, is your son honest? And I said, yes. And he said, does he, does he pretend to be sick? And I said, no. And she said, does he love learning? And I said, yes. Um, and she said, well, why are you listening to them? Like, you know, like, you know, your child better than they do. And it was really, it wasn't until my white child got sick. Um, and so some of these things are things that, you know, if you can live outside the neighborhood, one of the things that's most alarming about it is that when you do the map, some of the neighborhoods have been gentrified. And so now they have no black and brown people. And guess what they also have now? Guess what they've gone back and put in? Trees. No, I'm just Trees. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what they've built, you know? So like, so sometimes some of the things <coughs> that we're talking about, uh, Carlo, of course, was probably a baby when we were doing this five years ago. Um, but, you know, when we were doing the work with young people when they were falling between the cracks um, and having young people say they needed a safe place to go sort of from six until 10 at night. And there was no community centers. There was no, there were no soft places, right? And um, that didn't happen by accident either. When things became integrated supposedly in the 1960s was when the public swimming pools went away and private clubs started showing up, right? That um, just kids from the neighborhood couldn't go to unless your parents could pay for the private club membership. So there's so many ways in which um, redlining um, and, and long, like I call it the long hand of public policy plays out in our lives. Uh, one of the things that was stories, um, and I, I'm interested to hear both Lauren and um, Carlos take on this. What do you think of the strategy, say Milwaukee in May of 2019, declared racism a public health challenge? What do you think of that? I personally totally agree. And, and I'm, and I understand why I think my question, I, I'm always wondering how they explain it to other citizens to explain this because um, I think there are people who would want to challenge that because they don't understand what racism is. It's almost like you need to define racism before you say that, um, say that it's related to, to health. Yeah. Um, I think that I especially appreciate the choice of words, the term they use, public health crisis, uh, because I think that defines exactly what racism is. Um, I don't think that racism should be a crime because I don't think that would solve anything other than putting a surprising number of people in jail. Um, 
I think that is a public health crisis that is a malfiction uh, that needs to be treated. Uh, and, treat, uh, and treatment is not uh, like cutting off an arm and a, and a leg. Uh, it will take a long time uh, and it requires, uh, it requires efforts from everybody as you know, seen in COVID-19. Uh, everybody has to play their part in stopping the public health crisis. Uh, everybody has to educate their children, has to educate the people around them, uh, even though it can be extremely difficult to do so. Uh, and they have to educate themselves uh, to try and stop it and mitigate it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that why we're recommending um, not even passed um, that tool by the University of Virginia Richmond um, because when you look when you look at the data and you like it was really interesting to me to look at the cities I've lived in right to see how directly Seattle Portland. Um, this has, you know, 200 cities across the country in it. So we highly recommend at the table that you look at this tool because um, it actually explains, like one of the things that we do a lot at the table, um, we talk a lot about representation and uh, beyond tokenism. And it's become very fashionable in some circles to thank indigenous people for the land that we are on. Um, and one of the things that we say at the table is we don't do that unless we have, like I am literally sitting on Dakota land right now. And unless I have at least half of the people on my talk show who are Dakota, why, I mean, it feels like I'm really just thanking them for um, the fact that the dominant culture committed genocide and stole their land um, and dishonored treaties, right? Like if we are not going to welcome Dakota people into the room and help ensure that the Dakota people um, language survives and that the Dakota people um, are lifted up and treated as equal members in our society, particularly for the great sacrifices. Um, I, 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 we've had a, a lake here called Lake Calhoun and we're in the north, we're in Minnesota. Why did we have a lake named after a Confederate general? Um, and it didn't meet the needs of most of the people in the community. But I can't tell you when it went back, we restored the name to Bidet Makaska, which is the name that the Dakota gave it. Um, and people were so mad, um, you know? And so even walking around a lake, you know, I have to walk around a lake named after a Confederate general instead of the name that the indigenous people gave it. Um, it, it anyway, I can see Lauren, you've got thoughts. I do have thoughts. Um, so many thoughts. Well, two, two things. When I was looking at these maps, the first thing that I noticed was, where are all the freeways that I know? And I think it made me realize, oh my gosh, that's the 1930s. The highways went in not too long after that, but that's really recent. That's super, super recent. And my, what my brain did was it started to imagine what those communities that are no longer there would now look like. <laughs> um, and the second thing was, I thought, wow, 1930s, that's so recent. What happened before that? Uh, can we get another map, please, that tells us a little bit more about which indigenous communities were where and how they moved. And I, I, I want the whole timeline, that's what I want. Um, so I hope somebody's working out the, on that out there in the world. Well, maybe that's something Marnita's Table should put on their easy access, you know? That's, those are the kinds of things that we are trying to render the invisible visible. 
Um, because you don't have to call people a racist, you know, to get them to understand, you know, what it looks, what, what it, you don't always have to, um, resort to, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm almost overwhelmed with my thoughts because I, my perception is there has been a long standing desire to keep most Americans or most United Statesians or most, what do we call them again? You call them something, Carlo. Yankees. Yankees. That's right. Um, for the Yankees, um, you know, there's, there's something for them um, that I, I, I keep reading stories saying, oh, well, this isn't who we are. Like we've fallen so far from our norms, but I'm sorry, our norms kept me out of bathrooms. Like I'm old enough that there were still segregated bathrooms and my body was evidence of a felony until I was five or six years old. And, and so how many people have been shielded from any of this history? And Carlo, you were, I could tell you we were going to say something. Yeah. Uh, well, first I'd like to direct people to a website called native-land.ca if they're interested in knowing what native tribes uh, lived in the United States or lived in their particular area. I believe it, it expands uh, from Greenland to Australia and beyond. Uh, oh, so we love that. Can you throw it up in ours and we'll throw it up at the, we'll throw it up at our link. Um, uh, sure. I'll we love doing that. See, more of this. This is what our show is going to go to. Less guests, more good tools for people out there to use. Um, and I think this is really exciting one. Uh, uh, I found out that I live on Shumash land uh, and a couple others. <laughs> I forgot them. I'll be honest about that. I checked the website a long time ago and I forgot since. But I know I lived on Shumash land. Uh, and I think that it's fascinating and it's something everybody should check out and everybody should remember uh, because they did come here before us. Uh, they didn't even come here so much. Uh, they lived here before us uh, and we just genocided their people and stole their land. Uh, and regardless, uh, while keeping, while remembering the past, uh, like a lot of people say heritage, not hate, when they defend keeping statues up or as Marnita gave the example of keeping the lake's name. Uh, and it recently in Ventura, uh, which is nearby here, uh, there was a statue of Father Junipero Serra, who was the founder of the missionary system in California. Uh, and he had a statue right in front of City Hall uh, and his statue was taken down. Uh, and there were several protests. Ventura is a very conservative place. So there were several protests defending uh, Junipero uh, and even some website was put up, I think. It's, it's such a ridiculous scenario that it kind of, it, it, it cracks me up just a little bit. I'll, I'll be honest about that. Um, but Wuno Perosera and other Confederate and controversial historical figures should not be connected to our state. Uh, the reason that they have statues, uh, the reason you say heritage not hate is because you're saying we want to remember that they existed and we want to remember what happened to them. Uh, but not not necessarily even the bad things that they did. And of course, that's not what you're actually saying. You just want to keep the statue up. But if that's the argument you want to put forth logically, uh, then they should be in uh, museums and their names should be in museums. Their statues should be in museums, not in front of our city halls. 
so and while we should museums of tolerance mm -hmm. you know, yeah like, as opposed to just like because they are not great art either like they, they don't deserve to be a museum. they're not rodin's like they're not like you know amazing art we we represented a hotel a, a hospital system in the sixth congressional district um where michelle bachman used to actually be um a congresswoman if you ever heard of her before um and uh they had a, a statue in front of the main um, hospital for the hospital. It was the largest employer and the largest healthcare provider in the sixth congressional district. And they had like literally in 2008, 2009, they still had a statue up in front of, and I can't remember the name of, of the father, but it was a father, you know, it was a, a Sarah type. I can't remember who it wasn't Sarah. It was somebody who came to the Midwest and um, the statue had literally two supplicant indigenous people like on their knees bowing before the pre you know the brother or whatever and that so somebody noticed it one day going into the hospital that they had this you know 10 foot tall statue and you know somebody kind of mentioned well yeah it's, it's true we haven't been able to attract uh, you know many indigenous people to use our clinics and it was like have you have you considered the ten foot tall statue of the of the white guy who brought you know smallpox and blankets to to the, I'm sorry, but I I'm I'm not actually finding it funny, but it's it is in its own way like you know you could just see these ten white guys sitting around a table saying, well, do you think we should take it down? You know, and 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 the truth is there were people protesting it. You know, you know. Thicken your skin, you know that kind of thing, and um, and I always try and think of the list of things like that. I can't imagine that, um, you know, how often or how long, um, sort of white men would tolerate some of these things, right? Like, as as, as just to have to get used to them, and if you if you're not used to it, then we just you know you don't belong in our community. Shocker. Wow, that's really bad. <laughs> I love that we laugh at misery, but it's like, what other option? You know, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, that's, that's really, really bad. And just like, like, how could you be so self, not self-aware? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think one of the things to remember is that, uh, we, we do live in a world where the odds are stacked entirely against us. Uh, all, that goes for all three of us. Uh, we live in not just a world, but a nation uh, where that is the case. Uh, so, you know, we shouldn't be laughing at all these horrific actions, but sometimes it's, it's good to just bask in the hilarity of our oppressors sometimes, the foolishness that they embark on. Um, and I, I think it's also important to remember that when you say that is history and we should keep it as history, it's not just your history. Uh, it's also ours. And that's why we want to take it down. Right. You know, it's funny. And it's, it, it's even this idea that like, we only get black history month, right? As opposed to our history is entwined with this country. It's like, it should be ongoing. We have a great question here from Emily Barker. Um, 
about declaring racism a public health crisis? Do you think this is a useful measure for more cities to do? I brought it to my council and the question back was, what would be the de declaration achieved that we aren't already working on? Our city has a strategic priority, including race equity, which we are mostly white people. So obviously, no matter how long we've been working on it, we've got a long way to go. Anyway, any thoughts on if a specific declaration is important? Um, well, personally, uh, I think just in general, you could say a lot of words like uh, racism is a public health crisis and just not do anything. Or you could say no words and do everything. Uh, but there is something to having those words there, to being able to hold your city council members to those words. If they do officially declare it to be a public health crisis, uh, then when they take no action, you can say you're letting the disease spread. Uh, but if they just don't say anything and they don't do anything, what are you going to hold them to? Nothing, because you can't. Well, yes, and I actually, so I've been thinking a lot about this stuff. Um, we, are, we have an account with our, all of us run our expenses through a company called Expensify, who we somewhat love, by the way, Expensify is fine. But we have no idea why when you come into Expensify, it has this big Black Lives Matter, like it's its entry point and it's like what are you doing that lets us know that black lives matter like is there anything that you're doing um and so to me i i felt like there was just so much reaction um to george floyd and actually i think people are also freaking out and waking up about the fact that this is COVID is hitting black and brown communities so much more aggressively so I think you're right, you know, don't say the words if you're not gonna follow up with it, but powerful words can lead to action. And what do you think, Lauren? Well, it's interesting that you're saying, um, you're bringing up the Expensify example, um, because I was talking recently with some folks who work at some of the corporations in town. And um, of course, these are all corporations that have made statements and they were telling me how they're seeing things at their company that they've never seen before. Like a colleague making a comment um, that was racist and getting fired on the spot in front of everyone. Um, and some of the policies that they're changing in terms of like their hiring practices, but it's not highly publicized. And so I'm thinking what's better and is there a tasteful way to do this? Is there a tasteful way to make this the blanket statement, right? And then share with people what you're doing, not in a way that is, look at me, look at me, I'm so great because that's also not very, it's just not tasteful. I, I don't, I don't like that either. So yeah, I'm just, I'm, and I think as an organization, Marnita's Table, we don't necessarily toot our horn all the time and say, these are all the many ways in which, you know, we are supporting um, Indigenous people, of color, right? Like, we, we don't necessarily do that. We just do it. But then are there other people in the world that maybe we're not connecting with because we don't toot that horn? So it's, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about that a lot these last two days. Well, I, I think you're right. I, I do think, so one thing I think is very true, and we kind of started here with your story of not being able to see the elders around you and watching them grow old and, old and health. 
um, is I often have to tell people I'm interested in racism and equity, um, not because I care whether you personally like me or not, right? I care about it's limiting my ability to access opportunity and health and well-being. So even conceptions like reverse racism, my ex-husband used to say, do you understand that they're actually saying that they, we, they think we're so stupid that we get racism wrong? Like, because like, I mean, racism would just be racism. Like it, the very fact, you notice that nobody ever says reverse prejudice or reverse bigotry, um, but they say reverse racism. It suggests that they know that there's something unique about racism. Um, something different, and it has a power construct. Because if not, why would they use the term reverse racism? And so racism has a system attached to it. It has power attached to it. You know, if I dislike one or two white people, and I'm not saying that I do, so don't start sending me more hate mail. Um, I've been, a few white supremacists have found me out lately, Carlo, and they, they feel a need to send me notes saying that I'm hideous and that, you know, this is what ugly liberals look like. And it's just been lovely. I mean, especially that aggressive sexual assault against me would be a-okay with them. So, because, you know, I have such a hateful message, you know, right? Like you as a 14-year-old, don't you feel terrified of me? Mm, it's all projection. <laughs> you yeah. know, but, but that as we have these conversations, you know, um, I keep trying to say this is about systems for me it's not about you just as a white guy on the street caring about am i doing okay that's nice um but what would be nicer is i at age 58 um i actually feel like i carry all this extra weight on my body as almost like a protection um from the harshness of the world and and um i was talking to a friend of mine who's indigenous the other day and she was saying that that's very common in medicine women that that's something that indigenous people will say is that they actually carry more weight on their body to to pad themselves from um you know sort of that the condescension about well our people are better and we did everything that was good and so you you're just lucky you're here with us you're just lucky you're around um and so this project um I'm really, I'm finding it fascinating. Like you can just get lost in it, that not even past project at the University of Virginia, Richmond. Um, but there's also, you know, uh, the Milwaukee story, you know, that they decided to do that in May of 2019. So, you know, they were thinking about it and they were looking. And by the way, when you look at Milwaukee's map, it makes it very clear what happened in Milwaukee. Um, I also have to say this, I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, um, Lauren and Carlo, because you are generations younger than me. But the other thing is the number of people who act as though it was so long ago that you know there's just nothing they could have done about it and they didn't know anything about it. And, um, but that means, you know, I have friends who are in their seventies who were voting, you know, so, you know, this means that their parents or their grandparents, um, or their elder brothers and sisters when I was born were voting to make my body evidence of a felony, right? And right now, you know, I'm watching the West Coast burn while I'm watching my senior leadership talk about, you know, cities. And my family and friends are literally evacuating to Portland and Seattle to get out of the, the rural fires right now. Um, 
And so I'm concerned. I'm concerned at the way that we turn away from history um, and pretend like it didn't exist so that we can in invent a narrative that says we were always, we um, Yankees were always so good. Um, we've always believed in equality. The problem was, you know, those people just wanted to have babies early. They didn't want to, they didn't want to, they didn't want to do the work that was required. I can see Lauren, you're thinking things. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting just talking about um, our, the age difference. And I think I, it, it shouldn't really matter. I mean, you're, you're still here. <laughs> You're still here. It doesn't matter if you're you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, right? Like the impacts that it's had on you and your life, you're still here. Uh, you're still a citizen. You still matter. <laughs> uh, even if you're not young and, you know, have 80 more years to contribute to to society. So even that idea that you know, something that impacted you isn't as important really bothers me. Um, and I think if you don't realize that something that impacted one generation doesn't impact the one right underneath it and the one right underneath it and the one right underneath it, then I don't really, I don't really know what, what to say to you. Um, it's interesting that, that you often say that your body was evidence of a felony and I have cousins that that was the same that was the same thing and so I'm our family's just now meeting them. <laughs> um, and so families have been divided, you know, and impacted in so many different ways. Um, that I think a lot of us are just now learning about in in 2020 things that maybe did happen. 20, 30, 50, 70 years ago. Um, and that still, that still impacts my life, right? It still impacts the lives of my nieces and nephews and, and they're in elementary school. So it's, it's a lot to think about. You know, and, and they say that it, you know, historic trauma and which is why we have such a focus at Margarita's Table on historic trauma. You know, sometimes um, healing you know, uh, uh, being an oppressor is actually exhausting and uh, we can be really angry at our oppressors, but both sides in that equation end up worse off. If I could convince people who were racist and, and believed in white supremacist policies to lay them down, not for me, but for themselves, that carrying that amount of heaviness and hate in their heart is actually, and that desire to cut people out of um, today, a story broke that our Department of Justice may be considering, and, and I took it personally because, and by the way, Marnita's Table is nonpartisan, but I do notice when the two cities that I grew up in, Portland and Seattle, are being singled out with New York as being considered anarchist cities that, are, um, that they're threatening to take away federal funding from because they're anarchists, right? And that's where my sister lives. That's where I'm from. Um, and so I'm exhausted from, I mean, I guess, you know, we used to hear the term dog whistles and now people are just coming out and saying like, 
You know, we, we, we're not going to fund the cities because that's where you people live. And I'm hoping that enough actually white people join us and say like, hey, I live, wait, what are you, the hell are you talking about? I live here, what do you, what do you mean? And I want, I want this city, like I like my diverse city. What are you talking about? Like, I don't know. You know, it's kind of how I felt when somebody came out and said, if you, if you let, you know, Latinx people in, there'll be a taco truck on every street. And I'm like, that sounds delicious. That sounds, that sounds like utopia to me, a taco truck on every corner. Are you crazy? Except for maybe I could like, would like a ramen one on some corners, right? And, you know, some, some heroes and yeah. The dream. That's what I call the dream. That's what I call the dream. Yeah. Like you could stop and get like, you know, Carlos, like, you know, like a bibimbap truck, you know what I mean? Like, like, so one, one corner's got a bibimbap truck, another one's got a taco. Like, this is my idea of happiness. <sighs> I, I think that's the thing that makes me most frustrated about racism. Is the amount like think of the kids who have asthma, who live in those neighborhoods, who can't focus on schoolwork. So they can't invent the next great thing. Um, what about, it just, it, it just, it, it, it hits people, you know, children who can't go outside and play so they don't learn about the natural world. Like, and, and the, these are policies, they aren't just preferences. Other than Carlo, of course, who doesn't like the outdoors, which I love, by the way. Um, I have a child who's not a big fan. I'm not such a big fan of the outdoors. They once did a story on me um, because there was a period of time when I was really broke when my kids were little and we went camping with them. Um, but we always brought like crystal glasses and I always make fancy dinners. And they actually wrote a story about glamping that was in the New York Times that featured us which was kind of funny. And it was like, it was about like, we actually brought like a blow up bed and um, like, yeah, I'm not so much a sleep on the hard ground kind of girl. I, I like my uh, luxury. <laughs> but like not so much I'll be a gatekeeper. Mm. Have you experienced that at all, um, Carlo, in your life? Um, one of the things that I experienced as an older black woman, is people, you know, basically telling me that I'd be more acceptable if I was, well, for a while they told me that as a black woman with a shaved head that I would, I would scare people. Um, you know, I don't know, white people seem very, very concerned about our hair. Like whether it's like, that's something that bothers me just that people would be so concerned about like how we show up with our hair. Like, I don't know. It seems like, they have a lot of time on their hands. And I don't mean all of them, clearly. Again, no hate mail. Clearly, I mean the people who are concerned about my hair and not the ones who aren't concerned about my hair. If you're not concerned about my hair, don't send me a text about, well, not all people think that, okay? Um, kind of going back to when we talk about what we don't like, we're talking about systems. Um, well, certainly I get a lot of comments on my hair constantly. Uh, and not just from white people, also black people. 
Um, and in case anybody is does cannot see or is not seeing, I have an afro. Uh, and if you were, it's a very the, muscular afro. <laughs> I don't even I, I don't even know how to describe that. <laughs> Uh, but okay, I have a muscular afro, as Marnita intelligently put it, uh, and I I do constantly get comments, um, and I, I think the main thing I get is very old white people coming up to me uh, and talking about the good old days, uh, and other than that, uh, a lot of kids my age like to put things in it, uh, which is a very old tactic. No, not tactic, just very old, an old uh, representation of how white people often thought African-Americans thought and think that African-Americans are toys uh, and objects to be uh, molded to their desires. Uh, you know, I got, I've had many pencils stuck in my hair. Uh, it's, it's, it's demeaning. Um, and I, I think it's it's more of a cultural issue than it is systemic, but they the base and the superstructure interact in that sense. Um, that's my experience. It's it's mixed often because black people love it. Black people constantly come up to me and say, "Dude, that's amazing," uh, but then you have people sticking things in it. They have a whole episode about hair. Oh, I'm serious. That is actually an important topic. And, and it's true, like um, trying to explain, there was actually a big study about that. I, I'll pull up the links for our next show um, that they just did a study on professional women, black women, and, and that black women with straightened hair were more likely to get raises, more likely to be promoted. Um, and it didn't matter how neat and how coiffed a woman with natural hair was. So you and I, all three of us would probably not make as much money because all three of us have our own natural hair um, without, without um, leaning into white norms of beauty and um, societal norms. And so, you know, going back to some of these things, you know, like what are the things that we want to, what are the things that we actually, when we talk about, like, I'm gonna go back to something. I don't like the idea of the conception of the term white privilege. I know what it is, I know it, ex I know it exists, but when you talk about it, most white people then just spend the entire time trying to explain why they aren't privileged. Um, and I don't want white privilege, I want white normal. <laughs> I'm not looking to take away their privilege. Um, I, want, I want to have the same tree cover in my neighborhood um, that a white person would have. I want my children's asthma to be viewed as important as the public health crisis of say, if, 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 if white children had asthma at the level that black and brown children have it in inner city neighborhoods, there would be something being done. There would, if, if, if brown and black neighborhoods, um, in, in any way, if white neighborhoods in any way mimicked, whether it's lead paint, in old housing stock to water quality. If, if, if the people were forced to live with those things, um, I, I, I think they would change. But I'm very concerned right now that COVID-19 is actually killing off black and brown people at an, at, at, at our elders at an alarming rate. Um, 
they have managed to keep us in some ways um, in neighborhoods that are 10 to 20 degrees hotter. We are dying earlier, you know? And so, you know, what do we think of? Um, is it, you know, is it just as, do you think it's just, just keep pushing that rock up the hill? Um, or do we think there's some really big things we could do? Um, what are some really big things we could do? Thank you. Plant trees. Such a small thing. Well, maybe small, but not really. Um, and I think you have to have access to even know what the other option is. Um, again, I, I didn't know that not having a nebulizer wasn't a normal thing until I went to somebody else's house for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Right? Like, you have to be exposed to what health looks like, like what uh, the the other side is, is living like to even know that it's a possibility. Otherwise, you can't see or envision or plan for or implement what you don't know exists. Right. That's a really good point. I think from the youth's perspective, uh, we have to look at the education system. Uh, and I think a huge thing that my peers are constantly talking about uh, is teaching the history of Africa and African-Americans, because we don't do that. The main thing that we teach is that George Washington crossed the Delaware sometime in the 1700s. Um, and you have to memorize that date for about a week, and then you're good. Uh, and then you're out. Uh, and that's, that's, there's this culture here of ignorance uh, in which, uh, especially in the education system, in which you learn a fact and then you forget it immediately after, uh, which is bad in of itself, but the facts we're learning are already basic and oft, often biased uh, and are limited to uh, the worldview of really white conservatives, uh, people who praise and idolize uh, Washington and past presidents who we do not, or at least I do not, I won't speak for you guys, but I do not idolize Washington. Uh, he was, in my view, a racist, uh, and so were all the other founding fathers. Uh, and we need to teach the history of Africa and teach the history of African Americans because we are constantly taught that Africa doesn't really have a history, uh, that indigenous peoples uh, and aboriginals don't have histories. Uh, we have histories, we have proud histories, uh, we have the richest man in history, in fact, uh, King uh, Mansu Masu, I believe. Um, and we're not taught that, but we should be. Uh, we should be taught our civilizations, our philosophy, our epics. Uh, Africa has tons of epics, like Mwindo. We should taught, be taught our literal, our literature legacy. We should taught, be taught about the organization of African unity. Uh, we should be taught uh, our history. And we're not taught it. Uh, and I think that's a lot of the reason why people, or particularly African Americans, uh, just aren't, are so fatigued by American politics because it doesn't seem like it's their politics. It doesn't seem like it's their nation because they're not taught uh, anything about what they are. Absolutely. Well, we've been here for about an hour now. So do we want to go around and, and just talk about like, is there one more tool or technique or something? I really like this idea of us having more in-depth conversations with each other. Don't know what you felt about it today. Um, 
but to, to give people more tools and just to have these conversations ongoing, because we're not always going to agree. You know, I, I have to tell you, Carlo, some of the things you say make me a little nervous, even though I think I'm so down, right? I, and I don't mean like I want you to change anything you're saying, and I'm like, but it challenges me, right? And I think that's good. Um, that's okay to be, you know, um, you know, I, I check with myself because I have been, I'm the oldest one, you know, here. And I, I am a little bit worried about things like, um, oh, what will people think? You know, I get a little scared, you know, and then you say things that are so true and it kind of blows my mind. But I don't know if you, do you ever experience that with your family, Lauren? I know your dad's a little older and, you know, do, do they ever get worried with some of the things you're, you're talking about or? Absolutely. You know, and, and small things and, and things change over time. What's acceptable changes over time and what's inclusive changes over time. I remember, you know, when I was growing up, my, my dad didn't want me to, to wear my hair natural because he, he didn't want me to have a hard life. And he grew up in the South um, in a family where the women had lighter skinned and how they, how they managed was by straightening their hair and showing up as white as possible. And so, of course, you know, time, time changes. And um, I'm always excited to hear what you have to say, Carlo. I think that it challenges me as well. So thank you. Um, I'd like to interject and say that uh, when I was developing my politics, uh, I think when I was like seven years old, I decided I'm gonna become president. Uh, because that sounded cool. It sounds cool. Uh, and my parents were always very supportive of me. They were going to be like, you can do it. You just got to work hard at school. You got to do extra curriculars, all of that, and you'll make it. Um, and as, as I started developing my politics, I think I was 13 years old. Uh, my mom pulled me aside one day and she said, Carlo, you're never going to get elected. <laughs> Not with those politics. And I said, and I originally I was angry, but I realized yeah, she's right. <laughs> I don't know, Carlo. <laughs> I think I think I'm hoping that time catches up with you. Cuz I actually like to give pushback. You know, people act like I'm so far left or whatever now and you know, my dad was in a union in the 1950s and 60s. He was a German white guy. Um we did we used to think people deserved to make a living wage job, but you know who we didn't think deserved to make a living wage job was black and brown people. So it's like we gave up on living wage jobs when we decided that we wanted civil and human rights for women and black and brown people, right? Like suddenly a whole bunch of white men were like, wait, we should never raise the minimum wage again. Like what? Like we used to think somebody should be able to make enough money working 40 hours a week. And now we think, oh, it's okay for somebody to work 80 or a hundred hours a week for so little money they can't even afford an apartment in the community that they live in. And, and I actually believe that was because we were founded on slavery. I actually believe that too many of us in this country have gotten used to there always being a permanent underclass who will do things for less money than they deserve. And so whether that's being aid workers or, you know, how is it that Denmark, how is it that McDonald's in Denmark can pay you know, 15 or $20 an hour and, and pay their taxes and stuff so that people who work in McDonald's in Denmark have healthcare. Like these are choices we're making and it's their choices about who we value and who we don't value. Um, and, and so for me, when I look at this map, when I look at 
not even passed. Um, it reminds me that trillions of dollars and 400 years were spent convincing people that Carlo and Lauren and I did not deserve to be treated as humans. And that it took a big apparatus to do that. And it's hard to say that, I think, now for people who came out of the system. It feels so deeply uncomfortable, right? Because we've also, we're spreading democracy around the world. Um, and, and so it makes it sound like when we talk about this stuff that we hate our country. Um, and, you know, when you actually read, I don't know if, if anybody's ever actually heard, I remember when Obama was running for president the first time, um, there was a Jeremy Wright? Um, anyway, Jeremiah Wright, I think, a Reverend Wright out of Chicago. And they took this soundbite about goddamn America. And when you actually listen to it, he's talking about serving as a Marine in the military and coming back and being threatened with being lynched and being harmed. And that he had, he had fought for American freedom. And he's, you know, what should you say to a country that you fought for and, they, and you're wearing the uniform of that country and your fellow servicemen actually want to lynch you um, instead of thanking you for your service? And that's where that came from. And nobody listened to that whole thing. And, and so I think there are these people who think that this is all just over. We've, we've done, we're done. Why do we care? Redlining was a long time ago. Um, and I, the, to me, please go look at it, people who are listening and watching. Um, the thing that stands out the most is this idea that black and brown people are infiltrating. And I'm still hearing that from my political leaders in 2020, that we're gonna go to the suburbs and destroy them, right? Like that's, a thing and and it's still being said and it's still having impact ah! who wants to take us away who wants to take us home well i have to say that if there is a black organization that is trying to infiltrate and stop racism uh then i want in and i'm surprised they haven't contacted me yet uh just want to put that out there well we contacted you so good enough <laughs> Somebody contacted you. You've been, you, you've been contacted. I guess I shouldn't say you've been touched in case QAnon <laughs> is around to, to think I've been touching, touching you. And you'd be like, she's one of my aunties. Leave her alone. What do you got to say, Lauren? Uh, I love listening to you too. Um, and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with criticizing and, and wanting better for the people around you um, and actually actually doing what we need to do to create that utopia that they talked about all those years ago, that, that diverse place, that, that liberty and justice for all, right? Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with us actually seeking that. Um, so I'm here for this conversation. Yeah, so we're gonna continue bringing new tools. Um, today, we've been talking about the University of Virginia um, at Richmond's project. It started, and in fact, Lauren also brought forth, and as did Carlo, bringing forth a couple new tools. We've thrown them up in the chat session here on Facebook Live. We'll also put them up at our blog point so you can grab them. But I'm really, I love this one, um, the 
um, native-land-ca. That's really interesting. Um, thank you so much for bringing that forward, uh, Carlo. And then there's the article from the Milwaukee um, Sentinel Journal that has talks about why you might want to declare your city um, and, and, and make racism a public health matter as opposed to any other kind of matter. Um, and then, of course, we've been looking, oh, and then the other one was Mapping Prejudice out of the University of Minnesota. We've also put that one uh, link up as well in our comment section. And that looks at more of Minnesota and, and some of the policies. Again, if you think that racism is dead, we recommend that you look at these four tools. We're gonna to be bringing you more tools and more stories of black and brown lives from around the country. Um, and this is One Yankee um, signing out. I'm Marnita. Hey, Lauren and Carlo, uh, give last words and sign on out and we'll, and we'll, we'll all go to bed soon. I'm uh, just looking forward to, again, creating, creating the, that utopia that, that we talked about. <laughs> I, I want that world for, for my children, and if I have any, or someone else's children. Um, and I think, I'll say I think we can do it. I don't know if I really believe that, but that's, that's, that's what I'll give the world. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, and I think that we're taking important action here and people all around the country are taking important action and have been taking important action for centuries. Uh, and I think we should always keep up the fight for racial equality, for equality in general. Uh, that's my final comment. And you've been with Weather Together, episode 19 here. We love you, Back Pocket. We're so sad, Andrew, that you haven't been able to be with us. We know that Back Pocket podcast is going through some stuff. We love you as a podcast partner. Remember that our posts are always up the following Thursday after after the week so this one will be up not this thursday but the week after i think it's october 8th it's an october date no it's september it's the last week it's the first it's the last week of september next week i've lost my mind people pay no attention to the crazy woman with the bald head um it's been an honor to have you carlo as always and lauren we're going to be bringing you more tools and techniques and we might delve more into these maps in the coming weeks and um just look at more of the more of what's happening on the ground in cities. And I have a feeling that when you really look at these maps, you discover that the cities where, um, where most of the protesting was happening, a lot of it, Portland, Seattle, are places that redlining impacted hugely. So keep informed, get informed. We're gonna give you some tools to get informed. Um, and we love you. Oh, I don't, Mama Mia, something, I think I was doing like Italian. I know it, suddenly I'm gonna, like we're suddenly gonna all eat pasta together. Did you like that, Carlo? I just lost my mind. But that, but that's because I used to cook for y'all. And so I'd like to cook for you all again. One day after COVID, peace out. One for all. One for all. It's all, it's all for one. Let's start a union. Call it every human. It's one for all and all for one. Son, calling every city son. It's one for all and all for one. We don't want war. Can't 
take no more. It's drastic time for sure. We need an antidote and a cure. Cause do you really think Muhammad got a problem with Jehovah? We don't want war. Imagine if every prophet was alive. And current days amongst you and I. You think they would view life like you and I do? Or where they sit and contemplate on why do we live this way? Act and behave this way. We still live in primitive today. Cause the peace of the destination in war can't be the way. There's no way. So people just be a woman, be a man. Realize that you can't change the world by changing yourself. And understand that we all just the same. So when I count of three, let's change. All for one.